0: Hello, and welcome to episode 83 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Nate Fitt. Nate is a general manager of Elastic Security and former CEO of Endgame. He's also an operating partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. Before joining Endgame, Nate was CEO of the Center of a New American Security. He led Marine Corps infantry and reconnaissance units in combat in Afghanistan and Iraq. His book about that experience, One Bullet Away, was a New York Times bestseller, a Washington Post Best Book of the Year, and one of Military Times' Best Military Books of the Decade. Nate is a graduate of Dartmouth College, the Harvard Kennedy School, and the Harvard Business School. Nate serves as a trustee of Dartmouth and on the Military and Veterans Advisory Council of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. He's a member of the Young President's Organization and a life member of the Council of Foreign Relations in Trout Unlimited. In this episode, we discuss leadership, lessons learned in the Marines, cyber war, information sharing... Government policies, finding the signals in the noise, resource management, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Nate. Thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm well.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, and you've you've had kind of a, a an interesting ride in what we now call cybersecurity. If you can just kind of walk listeners through that, you know, from you know, really, I think Endgame had a, a great reputation, and now being part of Elastic, but you know, how you even got started prior to these companies?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I joined the Marines out of college in the nineties. Um, I was interested in, uh, the outdoors and team sports and leadership. Um, I, I felt like, uh, people came into school with a million interests and they left on tracks to be, you know, investment bankers and consultants and go to med school and law school. And and none of those things were, were compelling to me at the time. Um, so I became a Marine infantry officer and, uh, Spent five five years in uniform, um, and what I loved in the Marines was was the mission, and I loved building and leading teams. And I wanted to find a way to keep doing that as a civilian. I uh, I felt like the the constant pace of deployments in the in the post nine eleven world, you know, I just it, it was going to it wasn't where I wanted to stay for the next twenty years. And so uh, so I got out and I went to business school with the hope of translating that experience into a into a civilian context, if you will. Um, and I, I kind of gravitated to the early stage side of things, again, back to building stuff and uh, uh, went to Bessemer Venture Partners as an operating partner, um, working with the firm as as we developed a security roadmap, um, a thesis around, around mainly information security. And uh, Endgame at that point was a Bessemer portfolio company where uh, the board had decided to bring in a new CEO. Uh, and I threw my hat in the ring back in 2012. And uh, and then I ended up leading the company for seven years through the, through the Elastic acquisition. So, you know, that was the backstory that brought me to Endgame.
0: Oh, very interesting. You know, we were just kind of chatting before we hit record about, you know, kind of thesis of my podcast and like getting the views and insights from people coming from all sorts of different backgrounds as they get into cybersecurity. But I always find it's interesting the types of... Life lessons that you learned maybe in other roles in life, and you mentioned you know certainly being in the military and going to leadership, how well do you think some of those early things prepared you to where you are now uh,
1: i I couldn't have asked for a better, more formative leader ex- leadership experience in my in my early mid twenties than than the military, um especially the combat military you know there there's a a perception i think from the outside sometimes that the military is uh you know, a bunch of goose-stepping automatons. (laughs) And uh, that just wasn't my experience at all. I, I, um, you know, I, I found a lot of appreciation for, uh, creativity and initiative and, and a lot of decision-making authority that was delegated down and out in the organization. And so, you know, I was a small unit leader. I was, I was just a platoon leader with, you know, 30 or 40 people, uh, at any given time, but I had a ton of autonomy and, uh, And the stakes are really high, you know, I mean you're you're literally these are these are life-and-death decisions and um, uh, I thought it was a it was a It was hard and you know, I I recognize that I'm one of the lucky ones who came out of it uh, You know physically and and more or less psychologically in one piece But uh, but you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about um, You know simple things like uh, never asking people to do something you're not willing to do yourself or uh, recognizing that your, your legal authority, you know, the, the title on your business card is only going to get you so far. And really what carries the day is moral authority and, and moral authority accrues to people who uh, know their jobs and take care of the people on their team. And uh, I think those lessons were, they were true in the Marines. And uh, I think they're true in kind of every situation where you have a bunch of people trying to to work together to do something.
0: Oh yeah. I mean it's it's interesting that you mentioned that. And one of the things I've been kind of reflecting on recently, you know, is we constantly talk about you know, the cybersecurity skill shortage and not of people, and I, I've been kind of banging the drum for a little bit that, yeah, you know, we can certainly use more leadership with inside cybersecurity to fill some of those roles, because often as you kind of do these process flows and maps of decision-making, as soon as you put a human box, a human being in the box that has to make a decision, you want somebody to have that level of autonomy. And it's, it's frustrating at times to see that that happen where somebody says, well, I, I can't make a decision because I don't know what to do. Um, so it, it sounds like, <laughs> yeah. you know, some of the, the lessons that you got really kind of gave you that autonomy.
1: Well, you know, the, the, there are a couple of little catchphrases in the Marines uh, that that I think all of us really took to heart. One of them is "Indecision is a decision," right? As as you sit there, um, you know, hoping for perfect information so that you can make the right decision, uh, that sound that you hear are the doors of your options slamming shut.
0: <laughs> right.
1: and, uh, and so, uh, you know, inculcated in all of us, I think at a very at a very junior level, was was this idea of having a bias for action. Um, you know, better, better to do something, right, and develop the situation than to sit and allow events to happen to you. And uh, I think that translates well into company building. Um, I think it also translates well into cybersecurity, where you're dealing with, a, you know, a living, breathing, you know, well-trained, highly funded, motivated, capable human adversary on the other side of the connection. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very relevant, uh, I think, mental framework
0: yeah that's an interesting point that you bring up i think a lot of people there's still a little bit of that bias and we certainly saw today being february 10th when we're recording this that uh us is indicted or at least put out uh, charges against four chinese hackers and you know the the idea is that you know we really got to get away from this mentality that it's just some um, you know teenager sitting behind his keyboard with a hoodie on in either a southeast asian comp- country or eastern europe you know, these are well funded um Organized individuals that are either state-sponsored or have some type of criminal level of organization that are coming after various networks.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, I, I I love the adage that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And and I think there are good analogs here in uh in the in the more traditional national security uh, body of knowledge and. You know, whether it's deterrence um, and, and some of the principles from the Cold War and, and, and the nuclear age, um, you know, and or whether it's drawing a bright red line, frankly, between state actors and non-state actors. And I do think that, uh, that you pursue, you know, we as a government need to pursue state actors one way and pursue non-state actors in a, in a different way, um, you know, whether, whether uh, you know, uh, bringing to bear kind of national security tools or, or, or whether, uh, you know, uh, legal and, and criminal tools. Um, so, you know, this is this sort of conversation that I think is only in its early stages in cybersecurity and you you look at the, again, go back to the nuclear era, uh, first use and thankfully, you know, only use of a, of a nuclear weapon, um, in our history was in the summer of 1945. It wasn't until 1968 that I think you could say we had a well-developed nuclear regime of, of international, uh, norms and understanding. And, uh, you know, it takes it takes decades to develop these things, and so you know we're only now kind of get getting to that level of maturity in the cyber world.
0: Definitely, I think yeah, there's that. You know, and we we certainly had things come up recently with um, the 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 Iranians where there was that hey, are they going to strike back cyber? Are they going to move move from a kinetic um, kind of theater with the with attacks that we might have had against them, and vice versa? To you know, oh, oh gosh, are they going to take out? Um, you know, uh, critical infrastructure, go after different things. You know, where do you kind of rate that risk as far as, you know, things going from maybe the kinetic field, which you've certainly seen and been into moving to cyber warfare as, as we kind of weaponize different types of cyber attacks.
1: Yeah, I think, I think like it or not, they are, uh, they are elements of the same thing. Um, I, I look at, uh, you know, kinetic force, uh, or, or cyber force, you know, national force projected across different domains, whether it's, you know, air, sea, Land, space, uh, cyber—you um, know these are these are just different elements of national power, and um, I think the future will show that uh, states respond more or less seamlessly across them. Um, and cyber means will be another arrow in the national quiver, and and what that means for us is um, we need to make sure that that the U.S. government is extending deterrence into the cyber domain, um, and I guess what I mean by that is. Uh, Too often we're in a situation where we have companies you know, even big companies very well-funded and Sophisticated companies like Wall Street banks up against the resources of nation-states And I don't care how well-funded or how well-resourced well-trained well-equipped a private company is it will lose against a nation-state and so the only way to keep uh, the cyber domain from you know looking like the Wild West is for uh, governments, the US government, our allies, you know, international alliances to, uh, to extend deterrence and make sure that uh, threat actors know that if they cross certain lines in the cyber domain, we may not respond only with cyber means, right? It, it, it could involve a response in the kinetic world. and. Um, the purpose, of course, isn't to do that. The purpose is to dissuade actors from, from doing the sorts of things that they'll do if they don't believe there are going to
0: be consequences. Sure. I mean, it's, it's almost like we're talking about like a level of Geneva conventions for cyber.
1: Yeah. I mean, NATO, you know, NATO took this step uh, several years ago and said that um, uh, certain kinds of cyber attacks would be enough to trigger Article 5, which is the collective defense article of the NATO treaty, uh, where an attack on one is an attack on all. And I, I think that kind of thing is what we need um, if if we're going to actually deter our adversaries. And you know, I, I, my personal view is that um, the Russian government uh, did things to the United States uh, with respect to uh, um, social media and, and influence um, campaigns in our election cycle um, using cyber means that they never would have done using more traditional. Uh, Kinetic means, you know, a a person on the ground um, uh, in the United States conducting an operation because we have a declaratory and escalatory framework that deter that. Those people get, you know, they get captured, they get tried, they get imprisoned, they get expelled, uh, and it starts us up that escalatory ladder of of economic sanctions or even military force. Um, But we don't have the same clear escalatory framework in the cyber domain, which is why our adversaries use it. Um, and again, you know, if we're going to ensure that a basic level of trust uh, is the norm in the cyber world, we need to make sure that the nation states are are extending deterrence into this domain. Otherwise, the companies ultimately are going to lose.
0: Well, how much do you think of that too is also scalability? You know, if I was trying to get in front of two hundred fifty million Americans on a Facebook post, it's a little bit easier, I would think, than than canvassing every state and every district, right?
1: Yeah. With look, without a doubt. Um, you know, and let's not fool ourselves. Some of the some of the targeted work uh, that was done on those Facebook posts was uh, was targeted in a in a highly sophisticated way at precisely the slice of of demographics, politically, uh, geographically, where kind of minimal inputs could generate maximum outcomes.
0: Sure, and you know, it's it's you know also, you know, the, some of the things I've seen in the incident response side is certainly, you know, to kind of use the proverbial giving guns to monkeys. A lot of these. You know, some of these attackers will pick up um, attack hits and things on the dark web that were once only in the hands of nation state actors, and they may not know how to use it. And I think you know things that concern me a little bit is you know we see things like you know WannaCry and that could maybe have the intent of hitting one target, but quickly spreads to take out many others.
1: It's, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting and I think unique aspect of this domain. And it's something that national security decision makers need to really make sure they get their heads around uh, before they use these offensive tools, because, uh, you know, you, you, you fire a Tomahawk missile, it's not coming back at you, but you use an offensive cyber tool. And, and the analogy that, you know, I've, we've used in our offices, it's a little bit like throwing a boomerang out in the dark, right? And it's out there spinning and it's going to come back. Um, and you don't know when and you don't know where, but it's coming back. And so it, it really, in, in my view, ought to raise the threshold for, for use. We need to recognize that once these, these things are in the wild, we, to some extent, lose control over them.
0: Certainly. And it kind of leads in a little bit of where I want to go with some of this, and, and your background, too, certainly around some of the threat intelligence gathering over the past, gosh, you know, eight, ten years, is, you know, we've certainly seen, I guess, a greater push, you know, certainly for cooperation between the public sector and the government for threat intel sharing. And you've kind of seen this evolve and change. And what's your kind of view on that of how, where we were to where we are and where we should be?
1: Yeah, I think uh, uh, I'm just back from a conference in Riyadh, uh, actually last week, the Global Cybersecurity Forum, uh, that brought together a bunch of people from the industry and governments around the world. And uh, one of the themes at these gatherings, all the gatherings like this that I've been at over the past decade, is exactly this one the need for for better threat intel sharing? Um, I, I think it's useful for sure. Uh, I think we we um, used to live in a world where, at least in the U.S. government, um, information flow was too often one way. Uh, you know, th- threat intel shared by the private sector with the government typically was uh, ingested, classified, and then we never heard from it again. Um, and it, if it's going to work if it's actually going to generate better security for everybody It has to be a two-way street. Um, and I, th- I think we're getting better at that. I think there's there's more um, uh, You know more uh, Talent flow if you will between the public and private sectors in the space than there used to be um, You have people in government now who've had Decent long runs, you know in the private sector in the cyber world and so understand you know, uh, uh, have a little bit more multifaceted view of how it works. Um, so the information sharing is one of those—you uh, know—it's one of those drums that we always beat on at these gatherings. I think it's useful. I think it's improving. Uh, but let's not fool ourselves. It's—it's it's not the silver bullet. There is no silver bullet. Um, but it's—it's it's one of many useful policies.
0: Yeah, and we, around around some of the the kind of policies and frameworks that go with that. Um, you know, a- along the lines of greater. Um, information sharing and cooperation with government, certainly it's, it's the fear that sometimes I see with some of the things that pop up about different policies that are going to be in place, you know, whether it's going to be certain states that say they're going to refuse to pay ransomware out of you know, funded or, um, you know, taxed uh, tax dollars or other types of things. Um, you know, it's the push that we have to have with more people in cyber and, and industries really that that revolve around information technology to try to get a seat at the table to help frame those policies in ways that are going to, you know, not necessarily be in our best favor, but we can't sit there and say, I can't believe that happened and have never per- participated.
1: Yeah. That, that's actually one of the really interesting things about this space. Um, you know, and, and I think speaks to its, its immaturity in terms of policy development and by immaturity, I, I mean, I mean time and thought, sure. not, you know, not, not, nothing pejorative, but um, it's almost inconceivable that that individual States would be allowed to take a different policy view, uh, with respect to, you know, the North Korean government or, uh, ISIS, or, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, when, when we're dealing with, uh, criminal actors, great. I think there can be room for different state policies, but if we're dealing with nation States, then, uh, then we have to speak with one voice as a, you know, as a national government. Um, and, and so, uh, it, it's interesting to me that, uh, that we're still in 2020, you know, actually having one-off conversations about differing state policies.
0: Yeah, definitely. And is there, I mean, if you had to give advice to anybody with inside, you know, maybe our side of the industry or our, our side of the aisle within some how do they even get involved? I mean, is it at the more local level, federal level? Where, where do, where do we, where's the engagement that we should look for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, look, I take kind of a classic view of this, um, old school view of this. I think, uh, I think politics and government have become increasingly professionalized. Um, you know, uh, people people tend to uh, as, except at the senior most levels, where there's still some 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 uh, you know ebb and flow. Um, it tends to be a career track, and I wish there were more room for uh, for people from from this industry to go do a stint in government and. And vice versa for people who maybe spend most of their careers in the policymaking establishment, uh, come work at a company for three or four or five years and understand the, the demands and pressures on the corporate side. Um, because look, this is one of those thorny problems that requires the you know the proverbial whole of not only whole of government but almost whole of society um, you know solution. It it requires hygiene and smarts and you know widespread patching by individual users. It requires smarter software development. It requires um, uh, product interoperability. It requires products that are easy to use. It requires smart government policy. I mean, it's all these things, tax incentives. Um, and so, you know, the, the more we can do to make sure that we have uh, talent um, ebb and flow and and diversity of perspectives in government and in industry, the, the better we are. And there, you know, that need not be kind of this airy-fairy aspiration. I think there are a lot of concrete policy things you can do uh, to encourage it.
0: Definitely. You know, And one of the things uh, that I want to kind of steer towards, too, is certainly the issue with just the volume of data that we all have. Um, You know, as we start looking at building security operations, there's just a lot of inputs, whether it be threat intel from the government, peers, whoever else, uh, private fees, to watching things on the edge of a network. We've seen decentralized networks now with lots of endpoints that operate outside of the proverbial firewalls. Um, There just seems to be a data problem. And it's just also the data sprawl. I mean, with cloud storage being cheap, people just have a lot of crap on their computer servers that get out there, forgotten S3 buckets. It seems like the, you know, the attack surface area continues to expand. But if we just flip on all the black lights to see everything, it's it's a little bit daunting. So certainly I know with, with what you guys doing in Elastic, is, you know, how do you how do we tackle that problem? How do we kind of clean up the signal to noise so we know the types of things that we should be concerned about?
1: yeah uh, I think that's the key issue here actually from a from a you know product uh, and, and security vendor standpoint and it's why I'm so excited about what we're doing at Elastic and it's why I voted with my feet actually you know as endgame CEO to join forces with Elastic because uh, I agree with your term that we have a data problem um, as with most problems you know the inverse is we have a data opportunity and uh, in a world where the the macro secular trend is that we're collect uh, connecting, you know, something like a billion devices a quarter, right? And that's not slowing down, that's accelerating. And every one of those devices, to your point, is throwing off more and more data. Um, security, like, you know, everything else increasingly becomes a matter of, of uh, finding needles in haystacks or parsing signal from noise, you know, in a world where there's so much signal that it alone is becoming noise. And so how do you make sense of it? And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that's uh, sort of the battlefield on which uh, these problems are going to be won or lost in the decade ahead. Um, and uh, I think I think it requires you know a handful of things. Um, it requires the ability to uh, to instrument as much of that environment as you can uh, to ingest, uh, uh, store, you know, search, analyze, and act on that data in a way that is high fidelity and um, operationally feasible. Like you know from a cost standpoint, from a usability standpoint, um, it requires products that are um, easy enough to use. That you can begin to level the playing field in terms of this kind of structural talent imbalance, right? You can deal with it on the on the um, supply side by training people, or you can deal with it on the demand side by lowering the bar to, to using these products and make them easier to use, so you can empower more people. Um, and uh, it takes all these things. So I think uh, I think what we're you know what we're doing at Elastic is um, looking at the. Effectively the the integration of endpoint and sim. So imagine a world where um, On every endpoint you can you can do you know, very very high fidelity prevention, right? Where you're stopping uh, The vast majority uh, of malicious things, but you're never going to stop all of them And so it does require the proverbial defense in depth Um, and so layer on top of that um, high fidelity detection and response so that you can uh, quickly uh, compress that, that mean time to detect, uh, enable your user to respond quickly, right? The speed of response is the difference between an incident, uh, you know, a, a breach and an incident. Um, and do it in a way that is, uh, that also gives you, you know, and this is the SIM piece where we're integrating endpoint and SIM, do it in a way that gives you visibility across all your endpoints, across all your network devices, gives you that kind of global view so that you can actually build context um, and and package it all up in a way that, uh, doesn't require a PhD in computer science to operate. So, um, you know, I, this is this is sort of the core challenge that we're all dedicating ourselves to, and the one that we think can move the needle.
0: Yeah, it, it really kind of comes down to that that total visibility. But um, certainly, parts of this, in, and I'm kind of curious to your take on is, and you know, when you look at machine learning and, and AI algorithms and things like that, or machine assisted, you know, what where can that play. I mean, cause you know, no matter what, I mean, we can input a lot of this information, but where we can build things that can, you know, help, help the, the analyst think about what they're seeing in more constructive ways.
1: Exactly. Um, that's it. And that's why, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think we have all become accustomed to, um, to intuitive workflows and user interfaces in our consumer devices, right? It's sort of the Apple revolution. Um for some reason that I don't understand, uh, we don't expect the same from our enterprise products, right? We have a consumer standard and then we have a much lower enterprise standard. And uh, I don't think the two need to be different. So, you know, can we bring that consumer-like ease um, to enterprise products without sacrificing kind of the, the, the robustness of the product? I think the answer to that is emphatically, yes, you can. Um, it's something that we galvanized uh, ourselves to do at Endgame and we, we brought, uh, Brought to market this natural language interface for our endpoint product called Alexa, um, named after the goddess of the hunt, and you know it, it replaced these very complex query syntaxes with natural English language, and uh, now we're doing it at Elastic, uh, and and that kind of thing, you know, in my view is uh, is very tactically, very very pragmatically. Um, what we need to do in order to, again, kind of level this playing field between the attackers and the defenders.
0: Yeah. I mean, it it still really kind of comes down to that, you know, the human element, no matter what, there's a human behind the keyboard doing something malicious or, you know, productive with (laughs) inside the environment. And either you can enable that. I I still think it's, you know, again, the the cliche of say, Hey, look, we can put a man on the moon in seven years. I think this is a, this is a problem we can solve where we can join the two missions of saying, how can we, not allow everybody to have free reign with inside the network, but still allow productivity. So how much that then becomes kind of user training and user enablement?
1: Uh, yeah. So, so um, I, I agree with that. Let me, I'm sitting here thinking, geez, I just said, uh, I, I, I'm a product of the, uh, of the Amazon generation. Our, 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 natural language chatbot is Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, not Alexa. Uh, obviously Alexa is the, uh, is uh, is the experience that many of us have with these natural language interfaces. Um, so I think that uh, um, you know one one of the challenges structurally that you that you got to address is um, is the fluidity of the talent market here. So you know people come into these jobs uh, and and especially you know you can, you can sort of look generation by generation. The the you know average Boomer stayed in a job for whatever ten years. The average Gen Xer for four years. The average Millennial for eighteen months or two years. Um, and it, it just increases the importance in, of uh, of um, uh, making the training and equipping easy, um, you know, al- almost gamify it. Like you got to find a way to get people to s- up to speed quickly um, and, and make sure that they're adding value to the organization very quickly um, and make sure that their experience in doing their job is not, you know, consistently unpleasant, right? Because then all that does is drive people um, out of these jobs and, and the whole purpose is to is to attract them and empower them. And you know, I think that the, uh, um, I'm a big fan of, of, uh, of the, the philosophy behind the book Drive about what motivates people in the workplace. And um, the, the, from a social science standpoint, the three things that, that motivate people to, to do a job and stay in a job are uh, uh, autonomy, right? You, you don't want your boss mucking around in your job. Um, and I think people are more inclined to give their teams autonomy um, if they have confidence that the team is equipped to make the right decisions and do the right thing, um, and that that means building products that provide them the context uh, so that they have a good shot at making the right decision, um, uh, then uh, mastery, right? The the ability to develop mastery um, and demonstrate it. So like help people, train and support them to get really good at something using your product, build community around it, make, make a product... Um, uh, kind of a part of a community of users, um, uh, who are trying to do something that matters to them and matters to the world. And then it gets to the third piece, which is purpose. So, you know, mastery autonomy, um, and purpose. If, if, if you can, uh, build a product and build a community around the product to help people achieve those things, then, you know, I, I think you put a you sort of end up with a tailwind at your back, um, to, uh, to empower organizations to do these really hard jobs like cybersecurity because too often, you know, it's like loss after loss day after day. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good to give people the, you know, a good experience and some wins against the adversaries because I think it keeps frankly, it keeps them in the job.
0: Yeah. It's one of the things, you know, where I do either as an acting CISO role or advisory work, it's like talk about the good things. You know, the worst thing that you see is funding getting pulled for security, um, programs with inside an organization because they do such a good job that nobody hears about it.
1: Exactly right. Um, you know, people, we're, we're all the same to some extent psychologically, right? Uh, we've all been in jobs where, you know, nobody ever says thanks. Nobody ever says well done. Uh, nobody ever says you made a difference today. All you get are the problems and the failures and the shortcomings that land on your desk. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's funny. We had a very concrete example of this with the Endgame product early on where um, for our preventions, um, we were not necessarily alerting on everything that we stopped, right? And so uh, we, what we found, what we, the, the, the intent behind that for us was to reduce noise for the user. Um, the unintended effect that it had was that, uh, that users weren't giving the product credit for stopping things, and they themselves weren't getting credit inside their organizations uh, for stopping things. And so we actually had to modify the product in order to allow the user to see um, when something was being prevented, precisely so that they could kind of get some positive credit in their organization for doing a good job.
0: Yeah. It, it, I've always kind of said, you know, that when people are like, well, you know, how, how do I get into cybersecurity? What do I do? I was like, learn communication skills. Um, <laughs> you, know, you really need to be able to, you know, in a very short summary, executify what is going on and what are the good things and bullet points. I always tell people like, if you're sending an email summary, bullet points in white space, because that's, you have to kind of know your audience a little bit. Um, and some of that I, I think comes down to framing the language that we use in cybersecurity. Look, I mean, <clears throat> I've, I've joked around about it before. It's like nobody would listen to this if this was uh, the risk management podcast. Cybersecurity interviews goes a lot <laughs> further. I mean, I use the word myself, but the, the reality is we're just, we're, we're mitigating and managing a lot of risk, but I also think there's, other ways that CISOs and CIOs can hopefully start learning about, you know, when you are experiencing this much data, don't just look at it in the the worldview of only being cyber. It's like, what other productivity things or information gathering can we get metadata analysis across a large structure, unstru- or structured unstructured, unstructured data sets to say, oh, wow, look, here's a trend that we can capitalize for other areas of the business.
1: I'm, I'm so glad you said that um, because, you know, I, I feel like I'm straddling this divide myself where, Um, I have one foot in the world of, uh, you know, leading a cybersecurity company, now a cybersecurity business, where um, we get to talk about threat actors and zero days and like this, you know, politics, all this kind of interesting, sexy stuff. Um, And then my other foot, um, I'm on a public company board, on an audit committee, I'm on a university board. And so I'm the consumer of of uh, cybersecurity data from across our enterprises, uh, an evaluator of vendors. I work with our CISOs and CIOs. And, and you're right. I mean, in, in that context, this is an enterprise risk management conversation. And you start talking about ERM with uh, the, the men and women who are hooking and jabbing you know, down on the battlefield in the cyber world, and their eyes glaze over. But ultimately, if all that work is going to matter, if all that work is going to be impactful, we need to find a way to translate it so that the uh, the the CEOs and C teams and boards can understand it and make sense of it in a way that's empirical and rational and repeatable. Um, and you know, I think that's that's one of the most important things in this industry. It might be one of the the you know again the least sexy, um, but if we get that wrong, then we're going to limit our impact.
0: Yeah, it you know, really kind of comes out of the base. You have to build that foundation of, you know, what are we doing? What's the mission? What are we all rowing towards? Um, and you'll certainly see it in the product space quite a bit. Is it's, it's this idea of a silver bullet. Oh, throw this in. You need this. It's like, okay, well, where do I prioritize this across the mission objectives of the business? And what's the total cost of ownership going forward?
1: You, you got it. Um, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, budgets are finite. Uh, time is finite. Uh, human resources are finite, and and this is always about triaging and and making decisions to apply you know limited resources against an unlimited set of risks, um, and and building the I think part of it's part of its intuition and pattern recognition built up over time, but part of it is is kind of harshly brutally quantifiable, um, and so you know we we should be. Uh, I think our contribution to that, the, the perspective that I'm trying to bring to bear now at Elastic is, um, we should be, um, reducing complexity, reducing cost, reducing, you know, total cost of ownership, if you will, wherever we can. And, and that doesn't just mean sticker price. That means, you know, human intensity, in, in, uh, intense, you know, human, in, the, the intensive, uh, aspect of training and deploying. Um, it means, uh, um, turnover, it mean you know, all these other factors that that CISOs and CIOs need to deal with. Um, you know, we need we need to uh, generate maximum security, frankly, for minimum cost.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's <laughs> that is it, it seems to be the the kind of white whale in, in a lot of security operations is you know, what because it, it does it gets a, I, I've seen it you know half implemented solutions or things that were spent that just put a sour taste uh, in you know, a CFO or board's mouth when it comes down to buying other security products.
1: Well, I think, you know, this is sort of, there's some trends I think that we can point to in terms of where the world is going. Um, and, um, openness, uh, is, is hopefully one of them. I don't mean openness in, you know, national policy, but, but, uh, openness in software. I think there's a, there's real frustration with uh, black box solutions with, you know, products that don't integrate well with others, uh, you know, those days are over uh, and the future is going to be more open. Um, I think another is, is uh, transparency on cost and predictability on cost. You know, uh, uh, the dynamism of enterprise environments probably means that per endpoint pricing is, is going to be a thing of the past. Um, I think that uh, the need to predict cost uh, means that ingest-based pricing is not going to work because it doesn't let, it doesn't let customers look forward and model clearly. Um, it it doesn't result in the best security practices because you're cutting, you know, leaving data on the cutting room floor for cost reasons. You know, I think there there are um, uh, some some big macro trends that we can try to uh, to, to steer to um, around uh, usability, interoperability, openness, um, uh, resource-based pricing. You know, and, and these are the pillars that uh, that I think we're well served to try to build around.
0: Excellent. Nate, thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find you uh, online?
1: We're at uh, elastic.co and um, try to to put as much information as we can on our solutions there. And anybody can reach me through the website. Uh, Thank you for having me today.
0: Anytime. We'll talk soon and uh, have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.